Welcome to the Vox Church Podcast. We're so excited that you're taking some time today to listen to today's message. If something from today's message specifically touches your heart, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders would love to connect with you. Also, make sure you visit voxchurch.org for more information about our church and upcoming service locations and times. God bless you. Is anybody happy to be in the house of the Lord today? I am. Praise the Lord. Me too. Welcome to Vox Church. If you're new, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor. Thank you for being a part of our services today. We really are honored and excited to have you with us. Obviously, a significant week in our world, in our nation. Of course, as followers of Jesus, we affirm the sacredness of all life, all human life, and believe that God has great purposes and plans for our nation. We're told in Scripture He knew us before we were born. But I just want to encourage us as the family of faith to not just be pro-life, be pro-love, be a people who are passionate about serving others, going beyond ourselves, living from humility and compassion and fighting against every lie and every scheme of hatred and division and uh, step forward. I think it's a time and I don't think it's by any coincidence that we are in this moment as a church family walking through this series, Love Like Jesus, and talking about what does it really look like to stretch beyond ourselves and actually love like Jesus. And next week, we've had this plan for over a year, next week we're going to be talking about how you can be involved to help serve the orphan and the fatherless. And so next week, that's going to be a powerful uh, sermon. I just encourage you, be a part. There's a place for everybody. There's a place for everybody. And then a few weeks after that, there's every week is just awesome. We're so excited. But August 14th is a really special Sunday at Vox. We're going to be having here at our Brantford location what we're calling our Celebration of Cultures. So 4 p.m. on August 14th, bring a dish. You can register for this online. But our Celebration of Cultures, we're inviting our whole church family in Hartford and Stanford and Worcester to come down that afternoon and have a big cookout, big celebration, and uh, really learn about each other, about our history, about some of our differences, and really celebrate the tapestry that God is knitting together in this family of faith. And so just some encouraging stuff. If you were with us last week, was anybody encouraged by our missionaries all over the world? I know I was. So good. If you missed that, it's online, but we heard from our friends in Turkey and in parts of Africa and in parts of Lebanon all around the world. This week will be in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 1. This is Jesus Christ speaking. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne before him, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these of the least my brothers, you did it to me. And then he'll say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me naked. You did not clothe me sick and in prison. You did not visit me. And they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one 
I'm the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want to speak for a few minutes under the heading, Enough for the Least. Enough for the Least. Let's pray, church. Let's open our hearts to God. God, we thank you for your word, that you have a word for us today, that it is a timely word and that it is relevant to every one of our lives. And so I pray that you speak to us, that you minister to us, that you challenge us, that you awaken us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Everybody said, amen, amen. Amen. Enough for the least. I, uh, a couple months ago, was visiting with some pastors in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, just outside Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and we spent all day just together in meetings, learning from each other. It was a great day, all day long on a Tuesday, and we had some extra meetings going over into that Wednesday, and so Tuesday night, I stayed at a hotel right there outside of Lancaster, and, um, and you know, I was so tired from the day. It was just a long day, like talking for 10 or 12 hours, you know, it was just exhausting, and so I just was wiped out. I hit the pillow, boom, completely asleep. Out, like, out, like, you know that those times you sleep and you're like, you wake up and you're like, what planet am I on? You know, like, what day is it? Like, it was that type of sleep, just hard sleep. But I didn't sleep all the way through the night. I woke up at 3.20 a.m. I remember the time specifically because I woke up, boom, in an instant because there was something so loud that it shook me out of bed. The fire alarm in the hotel was going off. And uh, I opened the door and out in the hallway, people were running by to the stairwell and getting out of the building. And so, of course, I went in and grabbed my phone and then I got out and went down. You know, you got to have priorities. And so I got down to the lobby. They ushered us out of the building into the parking lot. We found out that there was a fire in the kitchen of the hotel and they were able to put the fire out about 40 minutes later. They let us back into the hotel. Now it's after 4 a.m. And I lay down. I'm like, well, at least maybe I can get a couple of hours of sleep before I got to go to this next meeting. And no matter what I did, no matter how hard I tried, I just could not fall asleep because the adrenaline had gotten into my bloodstream and it was just not getting out. And I couldn't fall back asleep. And I think that this passage in Matthew 25 is a little bit like a fire alarm at 3.20 a.m. When we hear it, when we meditate upon it, when we consider deeply what it says, it has the power to wake us up. It has the power to force us out of our rooms, to press us beyond ourselves. Now, this section that we just read is actually Jesus's final sermon before he goes to the cross. And it's one of three stories that he tells at the end of his final sermon. It's the third. And so to understand fully what he's saying, we have to just get a glimpse of story one and two, because every one of the stories is to prepare us for his return. He's teaching us how to live in light of his death, ascension, resurrection, and then his Return And so the first story you might be familiar with is the story of the ten virgins. That there are ten virgins, five are prepared, five are not prepared. They're waiting for the wedding feast to begin and the groom to arrive. He arrives and five are not ready and they're left outside the wedding. And so the message behind the story is keep watch for you do not know the day or the hour. That's what Jesus tells us. And so live prepared for Christ's return is the first message. Then he tells the story of the parable of the talents, right? And if you know the parable of the talents, a master gives three servants different amounts of money and he says, use it wisely and multiply it. And two are faithful to do that. One hides his talent in the ground and he rebukes that servant and the servant is not allowed into the, uh, the celebration. And so each servant is given a specific amount and God is teaching us through this this simple story that he's put something in your hand. He's put something specific in your hand, something that you're called to do, something that only you can do. You have a unique grace and you must be faithful with it because one day you will give an account. 
And so if the first story tells us to be prepared and the second story tells us to use what we have for God, then the third story that we just read answers the question, what does a life that pleases God actually look like? What does a life that pleases God actually look like? And he compares the day of judgment to a shepherd who divides sheep and goats. Now, I'm not a shepherd. I don't know much about these things, but the illustration still speaks. And it's important for us to understand that it's not just a story that this day will actually come. That there will be a day that you and I will stand alone before God and he will separate all of humanity into two groups. And he describes it as the sheep and the goats. And this is a powerful illustration because it teaches us a lot of things about that day. One thing that it teaches us is it won't be so obvious. You know, if you've not ever considered the sheep and the goat, you'll find that they look very alike that there are probably some of us who have called goat sheep and sheep goats because we don't even know the difference, you know? Because they really do look similar, especially when the sheep grow the horns. It's like, man, I'm not even sure which one that is. If you shave a sheep, they look identical now. They look like, you know, identical twins. It's really tricky to tell which one is which. And so the story is not about the sheep and the wolves. Everybody would know that. Everybody would know where the sheep were and where the wolves were. But the story is about the sheep and the goats because he wants us to understand that on that day, it will not be so obvious. And though sheep and goats share a lot of characteristics physically on the outside, they are very different. Any shepherd would tell you they are very different on the inside. They have different temperaments. That a sheep is an animal that longs to be near its shepherd, that it stays in the herd, that it wants to be together, and it's a dependent animal. Whereas a goat is very, very uh, independent, very stubborn, very uh, desirous of any type of food, anything a goat can put in its mouth, it's going to put in its mouth, always seeking, always searching. And so the sheep is a picture of the believer, someone who loves to stay close to God, someone who loves to be near the people of God. And the goat is a picture of a false believer, someone who's independent and constantly searching for satisfaction in other places. And so the story forces us to ask the question, which one are you? Which one am I? And I think most of us, we read the story and we think about it and we go, well, if I'm honest, I have some sheep-like tendencies and I have some goat-like tendencies. Come on, anybody honest in the room, right? So is there like a, is there like a C? I'd like option C. I'd like to be the shoat. I am, I am sometimes sheep, right? I am sometimes, this is what we think, and it's important for us to understand that Jesus never identifies a third option. There is no purgatory where mostly Christians can go for a little while and get themselves ready. It's not in there. There's no place where nominal believers who trusted Jesus with their head but never with their hearts can enter in. That one day you will stand before God and the secrets of your heart will be revealed and the truth of your faith will be made plain. The old preacher Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, there is no state, state between being converted and unconverted. Look at be, being, between being quickened and dead in sin. There is no condition between being pardoned and having our sins upon us. One or the other must always be our condition. And this is the great folly of mankind in all times. That they will dream of a middle state and try to loiter in it. Huh. We read this story, it's like the alarm is going off. The fire alarm is sounding. Asks us the question, where do I stand and how do I, how do I know? How do I know? Interestingly enough, Jesus does tell us, but he never mentions our doctrine. He never mentions our faith. He never mentions our church attendance. He never mentions whether or not you had a godly family. All those things are important. But instead, in this illustration, Jesus simply calls our attention to the way we treat the least of these. That's what he does. He says, the hungry, the sick, the prisoner... The naked, the stranger, 
I heard one theologian say that the Bible is a transcript of God's heart. I like that picture. It's a transcript of God's heart. And so here, Jesus is revealing to you and me something specific about God's heart. Something that should be obvious, but often goes unrecognized and unnoticed in our time. And it's this, that God, ready, cares for the least. He cares. Now, over 2,000 times in the Bible, we find references to how God cares for the least, that he cares for the poor, he cares for the forgotten, he cares for the vulnerable, he cares for the marginalized. Now, it's true that God cares for everyone, but he has a specific interest in caring for those who have no one to care for them. In fact, we're constantly told in the Bible that his desire for the least is justice. That word is the word mishpat in the Hebrew Old Testament, and it's used over 200 times in the Old Testament, the basic meaning is to treat someone with honor, to treat someone in a community and in a society where every person has the same opportunities and rights and each person has the same consequences for wrongs. And in Micah chapter 6, we're told specifically how God feels the people of God should live. Look, he says, he has told you, oh man, what is good? Can I put it on a lower shelf? And when, what does the Lord require of you to do but to do justice Love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Zechariah 9 says it similarly. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty has said. Administer true justice, that word mishpah. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. So this is the transcript of God's heart. It's repeated again and again. I don't know how we could possibly read this book and not catch this. He cares for the poor. He cares, he cares for the poor. He cares for the poor. But I think if we're honest, poverty is not as simple as it might appear, right? In fact, for thousands of years, people have been debating the root of poverty. And in our Western context today, the debate continues. The liberal perspective will say that the root of poverty is social forces, that they mostly exist beyond the control of the poor, and that the problem isn't the person, it's the system. You have to change the system, that's the real problem. But the conservative perspective will say the root of cause of poverty is the breakdown of the family, that the lack of initiative, the lack of character of those who are trapped in the cycle and the Bible talks a lot about poverty and its root causes, and it really tells us that there's an element of truth in both of those ideas, but poverty is more complex than we might imagine. It is a layered phenomena that is caused by multiple factors, one of which is oppression from the powerful, Leviticus 19, another which can be tragedy or calamity outside of the individual's control, that's Genesis 47, Another time, it can be caused by moral failures, sin, or neglect of the poor person themselves. That's Proverbs chapter 6. But oftentimes, poverty is caused by a collection of a number of these different things in various degrees. And so the message of Matthew 25 raises some significant questions. If Jesus separated the sheep and the goats by how they cared for the least, then how do you know if you've done enough for the least? How do you know? Do you do three nice things a day? Five. The Bible teaches if you do five, you will definitely go to heaven. I was making sure you're paying attention. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't give us that. So do I keep a tally? You know, one thing that caught my mind as I was looking at this text and meditating on it, just applying it personally, is the way he describes the wicked. He calls them wicked, right? And he condemns them to hell. And we think that list, we think, okay, those are murderers, those are people who, you know, maybe they, they uh, you know, kidnapped a child, or, you know, these are really bad people. But the picture that he gives of those people, he says, you didn't visit the prisoners. So, well, how many, how many times am I supposed to do, like, what, you, you weren't kind to the stranger. 
Okay. Um, I remember when I first read this text years ago, I was just paralyzed by it. I thought, oh my goodness. This pit in my stomach started to grow. This urgency, this alarm clock started to go off like, what am I supposed to do with this? And it's easy to assume when we read a text like this that Jesus is teaching that good deeds get you salvation. That he's teaching that you'll be saved by your giving to the poor. That the more you give to the least of these, the more secure your spot in heaven will be. But friend, if he's teaching that, I want you to see that then assurance of salvation is absolutely impossible. That no one could know for sure. Jesus promised us peace. He said he was leaving us his peace. There's no way you could live with that peace if he's telling you that you have to do enough for the poor before you can be sure. Because your heart will never know if it's enough. In fact, this would cancel out the entire gospel. If this were true, that what you did for the poor got you salvation then the entire gospel means nothing. The cross was not enough. The good news just became bad news and the hope that's hidden in Christ has just been undermined at its root. So the sheep and the goats is not and cannot be teaching salvation through good deeds. Entrance into heaven is not based on how many people you help and it's so important for you to understand that. But this passage has significant implications to how we understand the gospel. See, in Romans chapter 3, we're told that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That there are none that are righteous, not even one. That none of us can stand before God and justify ourselves. But in the midst of our fallen condition, God intervened. He took on flesh and blood. He lived in Christ Jesus a perfect and blameless life, became your representative, and then willfully chose to die as your substitute on the cross so that the shedding of his blood could be atonement for the remission of your sins so that from the day you were born to the day you die, your sins could be washed away. You could be made right with God. And then he rose from the dead so that you could know the debt was paid in full and he could give you, don't miss this, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so now the Spirit of God in you becomes new life and your spirit is united with God's spirit in a supernatural invisible unbreakable bond and your heart is made new the prophets told us all about this a new covenant that would be initiated by God himself look at it in Jeremiah 31 but this is the new covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after those days God invited Israel first and then the nations says the Lord I'll put my instruction, look at this, written 600 years before Jesus came. I'll put my instructions deep within them. I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. So there's this change where the instructions are going to go from outside to inside. Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I'll remove the heart of stone. So there's surgery going on here from your flesh. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. So a new covenant. What are they talking about? They're talking about what Jesus fulfilled in an upper room with some bread and wine where he broke the bread and handed out the wine and he said, this is my blood and my body given for you. Take it and receive it in remembrance of me that God would establish a new covenant with humanity where your sins would be washed away, where you'd be justified by faith, given peace with God and now his spirit dwells in you and you've become the temple of God. And this changes you at your core. And you might think, well, if it changes us at our core, why are so many Christians so jacked up? Because we're told how it changes us. That the kingdom of heaven is like a seed. A little seed that's planted in the soil that grows over time and that blossoms into a great tree. And so it is with us that we receive Christ by faith and the invisible change is often indistinguishable at first. But then it continues to grow 
and produce fruit in our lives. This is what Jesus called being born again. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Did you notice that there was one thing separating the sheep and the goats? Did you notice what they were? There was the sheep on the, on the right. There were the goats on the left. But what was in between the sheep and the goats? What was in between the sheep and the goats? Anybody remember? But Christ, only Christ was between the sheep and the goats, right? And so the difference between the sheep and the goats wasn't so much of how many people they helped. The difference between the sheep and the goats was actually Christ. And so the question you need to ask yourself is, have I entered into Christ? Have I trusted him alone? Have I surrendered to him completely? And have I embraced God through him? Now, as you start to look at the text, you'll notice that Jesus picks the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. Because we're told in scripture that that is an exact description of your spiritual state. That you are, and I am, the least of these. And that Christ came as bread for the hungry, John 6. And he came as water for the thirsty, John 7. And a friend for the stranger, Matthew 11. And covering for the naked, Genesis 3. And the healer of the sick, Luke 4. And a deliverer of the prisoner, Isaiah 61, and so those who have eternal life are those who experience Christ as the bread of life, the living water, the closest friend, the robe of righteousness, the great physician, and the deliverer from bondage. And so we receive Christ, we trust Christ, we cling to Christ, and our hearts are changed. You can't stand in the warmth of the sun without your skin becoming warm. So it is. In Christ, you can't live in the light of the gospel and not be changed by the love of God. And so this text is not dealing with the root of our salvation. The root of our salvation is by grace through faith. It is dealing with the fruit of our salvation. And it's teaching us that a personal encounter with grace will inevitably lead to a life of increasing love and good works. That to truly be born from above, your new nature must bring with it new love. Because to know God is to love what he loves. And he tells us what he loves in Jeremiah chapter 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness on the earth, and these things I delight. So if you know him, then you delight in steadfast love, justice and righteousness on the earth just as he does. God delights in caring for others. And the closer that we get to him, the more our hearts are warmed by his fire. See, God called his people to be different. We're in a world that teaches us that you should live for your career, you should live for your comfort, you should live for your entertainment, you should live for your pleasure, ultimately you should live for yourself. But the gospel teaches us that you should live for Christ. That the love of Christ retrains our hearts to care. What does it mean to care? Well, I've prepared for you a cheesy Christian acronym to help you remember. To care means that Christ's actions reframe everything. That's what to care means. To care means that Christ's actions, what he's done for me, they reframe everything. See, caring is not about a certain emotion. 
Caring is not about a certain uh, feeling. Caring is about acting in a way that Christ's actions reframe everything. They reframe the way I see myself. They reframe the way I see my money. They reframe the way I see my enemy. They reframe everything. Christ's actions reframe everything. That's what it means to care. So God is not looking for guilt-ridden, fear-filled people who are trying to fill a quota to make an angry God happy. God is looking for grace-driven, love-filled people whose hearts have been transformed by his kindness to the degree that when we see a need, we are moved into action. So he says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. That's mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing. That is a paradigm-shifting thought. What does it mean that you did it to me? I think it's got a few implications, one of which is the essence of the Imago Dei. In fact, all of humanity's looking for a good reason for human rights, but every answer is flawed except the answer given by the believer, by the Christian. The Christian believes that human rights are not founded in a person's abilities or a person's you know, a contribution to society. Human rights are rooted in the Imago Dei, that every single person carries the image of God, that bearing upon each individual, doesn't matter what race you are, how much money you make, where you came from, from how old or young you are, every single person bears the image of God and that means they're worthy of dignity and honor and protection because they're an eternal being. This is such an important idea. I love the way C.S. Lewis said it. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. See people as eternal the barista that messes up your order, the person that's driving too slow in front of you. Christians see the world differently. We serve others because we honor the image of God. When you did this for the least of these, you did it to me. It also means that God deeply identifies with the vulnerable. I remember when I first came across Proverbs 19:17, blew my mind. I thought, I thought I was a typo. It was so mind-blowing to me. The writer says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. <laughs> In other words, God takes personal responsibility for the vulnerable. And the gospel was always intended to transform our motives. I don't serve because you deserve it. I serve because Christ deserves it. That's it. It changes the fundamental motive of service. And you start thinking about that, and you think, wow, what could it look like if followers of Jesus at Vox Church actually believed that? What could it look like if every one of us started to love a little bit more like Jesus, you know? Last week, we heard from our friends in Ukraine and Lebanon and Turkey about the needs of these different nations, and the needs are pretty significant, aren't they? I mean, they're pretty massive. Vox gives a lot of resources to these missions and to these needs, but it's just scratching the surface of what's possible. But it's not just the needs that we heard about last week. There's, there's other needs too. There's refugees, there's genocide, there's homelessness, there's food insecurity. And I think the more we hear about the needs, the more overwhelming it can become, right? We live in a news cycle that is just nonstop. Needs, 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 needs. Another shooting, another war, another orphan child. And it's easy for us, even as followers of Jesus, to suffer from what psychologists call compassion fatigue. You know, I got nothing left. I don't know, I don't know, it's overwhelming. Right now in Connecticut and Massachusetts, Vox has nine locations, seven in Connecticut, two in Massachusetts. Right now in our two states, there are 985,730 people battling hunger. 
Over 200,000 of them are children. Right now, in our two states, there are over 16,000 incarcerated residents. That's a lot of visits. It feels overwhelming. It feels overwhelming. And so I want to make a difference for God. I want to honor Jesus. I want to, I want to serve the least of these. But where do I actually start? I'm glad you asked. Because Jesus tells us. He tells us specifically in verse 40. I don't know if you saw it. Look at it with me. And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. How about one? Think you could do it to one? Think you could do for one what you wish you could do for all? Can't save the world. Can't heal every problem. But I wonder if you could start with one. You've heard the story of the little boy and the starfish, right? He's on the beach. He's throwing the starfish back in the water. He doesn't want them to dry out and die on the sand. The old man comes up to him and says, son, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Look at this beach. It's miles long. There's starfish everywhere. You're not going to make a difference. And this, this boy just ignores him, ignores him. He says, he said, little boy, come on, go do something else. Go play a game, go, go learn a trade, go do something. But don't keep throwing starfish in the water. You're not making a difference. And finally, the little boy looks at the man and then looks at the starfish. He throws it back in the water. He says, well, I made a difference for that one, right? I made a difference for that one. I can't make a difference for every single one, but maybe I can make a difference for that one. And so you say, okay, I can make a difference for one. I can make a difference for one. Where do I look for the one? Well, the Bible actually tells us where to look for the one also. And it might surprise you. The Bible tells us specifically where to start to look for the one that might have a need that you need to meet. And it tells us that the first place that we should look is in our family. The first place that we should look is in our family. The family that God placed you in. The biological family, the adopted family, whatever it might be. The family of origin that you are living in, grew up in, are consistently in, that's where you start. First Timothy 5 tells it like this. Look at this. But those who won't care for their relatives, oh boy, I don't like this. What, wait. Especially those in their own household have denied the true faith. Such a person is worse than unbelievers. You know, sometimes it's easier to send money to Africa than it is to return the phone call from your mother. Right? Let's just be real. So where do I start? Well, that's not very romantic. Where do I start? Start with your family. Start with the needs and the hurting right in your family. Start there. And as you care for your family, Jesus then commands us to stretch beyond our family and to care for other Christians. Not skipping our family, but then extending beyond our family to other Christians. That's why, by the way, in verse 40, he says, you do it to one of the least of these, my brothers. In the Greek, it's my brothers and sisters. You did it unto me. And so Jesus is talking about his brothers and sisters. And some people assume, well, that's just everybody. But that's not actually everybody. Just a few chapters later, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us specifically who his brothers and sisters are. Look at it in Matthew 12. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Galatians 6.10 says it like this. Therefore, whenever we have opportunity, we should do good to everyone 
especially to those in the family of faith. And so there's a strategy here, and I don't want you to miss it because it's so important. The strategy that God is trying to get us to understand is that you begin with your family. And if you will begin with your family, your family will get healthier. And as your family get healthier, your capacity will expand. And then you take that healthy family and you insert it into God's family, the church. And if you start to serve the needs of God's family, the church, serve others in the church, serve the community of faith, then guess what happens? Healthy families produce a healthy church and a healthy church then expands its capacity to do what? To begin to change a broken world. And so you thought jumping right to the broken world would be smart, but if you start with your family and then go to your church, the compound effect is transformational and we can do so much more. There's a strategy here. And we have to understand how it works. See, the church plays a unique role in the world, and a lot of people don't understand the role of the church. The primary role of the church is to preach the gospel and make disciples. The primary role of the church is to preach the gospel and make disciples. We believe in the transformation of the human heart, that a heart can change by grace. And when it's changed by grace, everything changes. When it's changed by grace, it transforms family trees and changes the world. And so we've bet our lives. The local church has bet all we have on the transformation of the human heart as the greatest way to transform society, but we're not a social service agency. We're not a hospital. We're not a drug rehab. We're not a single mom's home. All those things are important. We're not a political action agency. None of those things are the root purpose of the church. Our power is in our focus. We preach the gospel. We make disciples. And then after we've done our first priority fully, we then also enter into our second priority, which is to bring relief to those in need which is to serve the community around us, both our congregation and beyond. And this is why we partner with so many powerful organizations, both locally and globally, to provide food for the hungry, to provide clothes for the naked, to bring the gospel to the world. But I wonder if in the midst of all that, some of us have fallen asleep. That the alarm's going off, but we're trying to hit snooze. Maybe during this challenging two and a half years that we've been in, you started to insulate and say, listen, I'm just gonna worry about mine and me. And friend, what you have to understand is that the spiritual life was never meant to be suburban. It was never meant to be comfortable. It was never meant to be safe. It was never meant to be protected that to follow Christ is to risk. That if you are unwilling to risk, then you are unwilling to follow, period. That you must be willing to step beyond yourself. So let me give you three very simple, very practical steps, okay? Number one, these will not surprise you. Serve your family. Serve your family. It's going to look different for every one of us. I don't know what your family needs. I don't know what season of life you're in. You might be single. Your kids might have grown up. You might have little kids, whatever the situation might be. But beware of skipping what's right in front of you. Real success in life is when the people who know you best respect you most. So maybe there's an elderly family member. Maybe there's a relative that is in a financial bind. Maybe there's someone in your family far from God that you need to pray for. You have to use wisdom. You have to use discernment. But you should look for opportunities to serve your family. That's how you practice Matthew 25 first. But then expand beyond that. Number two, serve in the church. Serve in the church. A lot of people don't do this. We're too busy. We've got other things going on. What does it mean to serve in the church? It means to create space in your life to volunteer your time, your energy, your skills, your abilities so that the people of God can gather and worship and strengthen one another. Maybe it means serving in Vox Kids or joining a servant team or parking cars or auditioning for worship or leading community group. 
But sometimes we get cynical about serving in the church because we're like, oh, I don't want to. There's so many other people. It's just a big machine. Everything's running. Listen, I've been doing this 10 years. We started with nine people and no money, okay? And by God's grace, we have nine churches and thousands of people, and we're seeing the gospel advance all over the place, and it's only his mercy that's done it. But I want to tell you something straight up. Although a lot has changed, my heart and passion for the local church has not changed. I have no interest in some big organization or some large machine. I believe that the local church can transform hearts and become a house of healing. And when the church is healthy, it becomes the greatest, most powerful, most uh, opportunistic way to see the world receive Christ. That a healthy church allows the world to experience the love of God. And so when we serve in the church, we're creating a healthy environment for people to experience grace. Let me try to illustrate. Maybe you're holding a sign at the door and you say, oh, I don't have time for that. I don't want to get here early. I can't be doing that. Friend, do you realize that that person probably had nobody smile at them all week? That every single week people are walking in who are lonely and who are far from God and a smile and a hello might just be the thing that turns the corner so that they can realize I'm not alone in this world. There actually is a God who cares. You think that's so simple. That's so small. It's so insignificant. Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water to a prophet, You'll receive a prophet's reward. The little things matter. The little things matter to God. You might say, I don't got time to serve in box kids. Really, you don't have time to teach a kid the Bible and anchor his life in truth on a Sunday for a few hours. You don't have time to do that. You say, well, maybe I could serve on worship. Well, maybe you could use your gifts. And you're not just singing a song and, and setting up early. That's not the point. The point is to bring people into the presence of God, to experience the power of God and the grace of God and the life of God. And so some of us are too busy, some of us are too jaded, but we have to realize that a healthy church is the greatest way to reach the world. And when we come here and we do all this, we're creating space for people to encounter God and experience his love. So I want to encourage you, jump in, jump in, be a part, be a part. Serve your family, serve in the church. Number three, serve through the church. Serve through the church, so simple, but this means joining the outreach efforts to see our community blessed. You know, we spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out and pray through and ask others, how can we best serve our communities? How can we best serve Brantford and Hartford and Springfield and Bridgeport and on and on and on and on and partner with organizations that are making a difference at voxchurch.org outreach. You can hear about all the different partnerships we have, working with food pantries and homeless shelters, dozens of other organizations. And you might say, well, I like to serve in other ways without the church. And listen, serving independently of the church is awesome. That's great. But there is a real power in our collective service because it allows us to make exponential impact. And so, you know, you think about souls for souls, right? Our goal is 2,000 pairs of shoes to give away to families in need. And the Kendricks, we just emptied our shoe, our extra shoes this uh, yesterday. And it was like we brought two trash bags full, probably 20-something pairs of shoes. Um, because you got two pairs of shoes that you don't need. Let's be real. You got four pairs of shoes you don't need. You probably have 12 pairs of shoes. How many pairs of shoes can you possibly wear? You only have two feet, right? If you haven't worn them in 90 days, let's give them to somebody else. Souls for souls. Well, maybe you can give six pairs. Maybe you can give eight pairs. Maybe you can give two pairs. But I know that when we give them together, we could, we could probably put shoes on a whole village. We can exponentially increase our impact when we do it together. And this is the power of serving through the church. Serving through the church. We don't just serve through our going. We serve through our giving, right? We serve through our giving. It's important to realize every time we give our tithes, we give our offerings, we're helping that church in Turkey. We're helping that church in Lebanon. We're helping launch the next Vox location. In Jesus' name, we're funding the gospel across the world. And, you know, it's so important. There's this temptation amongst 
Christians to say, well, you know, the economy's terrible, money's tight, I'm going to cut my giving back. And I just want to lovingly say that that is an immature understanding of the gospel. Because when we give, we don't give out of our excess. We give in faith. 20 years ago, Christy and I, my wife and I, we decided, hey, we're going to give first. We're going to set aside money for the local church and for the nations first before we do anything else. And that's before groceries. That's before, you know, uh, our mortgage. We're going to give. And we're going to increase that giving every year. We've done that now 18 years being married. And you know what we've learned? That sometimes it's absolutely terrifying to give first. But it trains your heart to trust God as the provider. And when you do that, you discover that his promises are true. That he always provides more than enough in unexpected ways. And so I just want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. Serve through the church and watch how God will work. Because according to Jesus, the distinguishing mark of the people of God is that we care that Christ's actions have reframed the way we see everything. And maybe you're here right now, and if you're honest, for one reason or another, you found yourself withdrawing. And I just want to say it's time to, it's time to break out of that. It's time to hear the alarm clock. It's time to hear the fire alarm and wake up. Hebrews chapter 10 could have been written this morning. It's so relevant. But we'll conclude with this. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. That's what we're doing right now. Let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. You know, my prayer is that right now, God would do something in our hearts, that he would once again stretch us a little more to love like Jesus and to see beyond ourselves. Would you stand with me? People are hungry and thirsty, both physically and spiritually. Who's going to offer them living water? The world is full of strangers. Who's going to welcome them? Somebody's sitting alone in a hospital. Somebody's sitting alone in a prison. Who's going to visit them? You can't meet every need. You can't meet every need. But you can meet one. You can meet one. You can meet one. So take a moment and close your eyes right now and invite the Spirit of God to speak to you. And if there's a part of you that's fallen asleep or played it safe or stopped risking or been too self-focused, just turn it over to God right now. And even invite Him, say, oh God, would you change my heart? God, would you wake me up with that fire alarm? God, would you stir me now? I'm sorry for falling asleep. I'm sorry for growing cold. I'm sorry for losing sight of your heart to care. Stir me even now. Just invite him. We're going to take a few minutes to sing. And I want it to just be a time of worship and a time where we invite him.
to do a work. So Lord Jesus, today as we sing, we invite you to do a work in us. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today to this Vox Church sermon. If something from today's message spoke to you and you've just made the decision to follow Jesus, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders will help you as you begin your journey with Christ. God bless you.